What's going on, guys? Welcome back to a brand new episode of the Hamilton Train Podcast. If you are new here, welcome to the show. My name is Jared Hamilton. And if you have been around the podcast scene, listening to a lot of the episodes, um, I am behind as fuck. So um, there's a little bit more space in between these most recent ones than, I, than, than I'd like there to be. Um, just things have been been a little bit bonkers on the back end, just to give you guys kind of a heads up. So that's why I haven't been quite as consistent getting new episodes out to you. And I apologize for that. But nonetheless, less, we uh, are here now. So I'm grateful to have you in the house. Now, today's episode, I'm interviewing my friend, Nicole Hagen. So some of you guys probably follow her already. She um, she is uh, on Instagram at um, Nutrition with Nicole. And I was actually on her podcast here recently and had such a great conversation and had such a great time. And we just, we, we vibed really well. I wanted to get her on the podcast because she has a very different perspective. Um, we basically have the same thoughts on a lot of different stuff, but I wanted you guys to be able to see this from her point of view, because when it comes to a lot of this, like the darker stuff, like the binge eating, the emotional eating, the, you know, the, the things like with your body, like hating the way you look and feel all that kind of stuff. Um, a lot of, times it just hits different when it's someone else who has gone through this firsthand. So um, Nicole has a, a pretty a pretty crazy background when it comes to this stuff. And now she's a coach and helps lots of people with the same kind of stuff. So I wanted to get her on the podcast and talk about her experiences overcoming her inner darkness, so to speak. So um, I won't take any more of your time in the intro right here, and I will get her on the line. And I hope you enjoy. Hey, hey, how are you? Good, how are you? I'm good. How's your day been so far? Uh, today's been good. I actually had some time to get out and take my dog for a walk. So sometimes that doesn't always happen by noon. Yeah, well, now now I have to ask, what kind of dog do you have? <laughs> we have a almost seven-month-old golden retriever. Nice. Well, I now like you even more because you have a <laughs> And then you do things like walk your dog and take pictures on Instagram with your dog. So naturally. Yes. <laughs> no, we have, we have three. So I am like the biggest dog sucker. I'm like, I, I would almost get dog dad tattooed on my neck. Like it's that bad. So <laughs> I mean, you have it on your IG bio. So yeah, that's yeah. the next step for sure. Yep. Well, again, like I said, thank you for, some, for, for, uh, for doing this. I, I, I enjoyed our podcast so much that I, that's why I wanted to to have you on just because your perspective um, is super, not just refreshing, but I agree with it, but also like, I think it will help my audience a lot as well, because um, it's one thing like the meathead dude telling you all this stuff, but it's, it's different from a relatability standpoint when it's like, it's like, I'm the meathead guy, right? Like, even if I'm saying everything that's right, or it's what's helpful, it's like, but I, there's that, 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 uh, what am I looking for? Like that, that distance between the relatability of like, well, you're not a woman. You don't get it. You don't understand these struggles, whether it be body image or mindset or women's stuff. And so I'm like, okay, bet. So I'm going to make women talk about it. So yeah. love it. Um, so my audience probably doesn't know, like, let's say that assuming they don't know much about you. So give kind of like your rundown on just like you, your story, um, that kind of thing. Yes, absolutely. My name is Nicole and I currently live in Lancaster, Pennsylvania. Although, and this is like big news, I've not shared it publicly yet. Um, I never thought I would say this, but my husband, puppy and I are moving to Florida oh. in the next couple of months. And I know no one can see me, but like, if you look at me, I am as pasty white as you can possibly get. So like my life will be lived in SBF 80 moving forward, but we're moving to be closer to family. 
um, which is the best move for us right now. So lots going on on that front, but I am an online nutrition coach and have been for, this makes me sound really old, but over eight years (laughs) and it was never originally what I intended to do. So I actually went to get my degree in psychology because I have always loved people watching and just understanding like what makes certain people tick and why do some of us act so differently than others? And so I wanted to become a psychologist and I was like, my job is to help people. My job is to be the one that people go to for advice. And then when I was in my undergraduate degree, my life basically blew up. Um, I had the standard, like perfect family, two loving parents, an amazing younger brother. We've always had, you know, a dog, not really much to complain about, but then my brother started battling drug addiction and that was like, my world imploded. And we grew up in a very conservative Christian family. So it was like, hush, hush. You don't talk about this. Like it's a sin. There was very little support. Um, and I didn't really know how to deal with that. Because a lot of my life was living up to the expectations of others. And so I didn't have anybody to talk to and I didn't know how to process it. And at the time I was like, I'm going to become a psychologist. Like I shouldn't need to see a psychologist. So there was a little bit of that stigma at the initial part of this trauma that I was going through and that my family was going through. So needless to say, I felt completely out of control And my brain's way of keeping me safe was to obsessively control my calories and obsessively control how many miles I ran every day. So for years, I ate 999 calories confirmed by my fitness pal, and I ran five plus miles every day and I whittled myself down to absolutely nothing. I've seen pictures like, like you were posting recently, you're like, Hey, I'm actually like 40 or 50 pounds heavier than what I was. And it's the best I've ever been. And like, I've, you, I'm, I'm grateful you share those pictures, but continue. <laughs> yes. No, really. Like I look back at that and I'm sure we'll dive into this, but like, I had no ability to see what I see now. Like I was so inside my head and I just needed the safety and security of like this white knuckle control that obsessing over food and fitness gave me. And it was terrible. Like I hated how I felt. I didn't, I never felt good enough. Like I remember being that very underweight, like not menstruating female. And I still wouldn't run without a shirt on because like, oh my gosh, I still have so much insecurity. So it's, it just goes to show like, it's all a head game, not so much about the physical. And so I didn't have a wake up call till several years later. Um, but that's what got me into this. Cause I was like, oh shit, like I need to work on this myself And I didn't realize how much nutrition is not about nutrition at all, but is very much about like what we're going through internally and the trauma in our lives and the stories we tell ourselves about food. And so that really blew up my passion for helping women specifically navigate their relationships with food in a similar way. So diverted from the psychology route, although I love that that's my background because I do think so much of the mindset work helps. And went to get my master's in nutrition science and public health. And yeah, I guess the rest is history because here I am. I love it. I know I'm in the right spot. And as sucky as that experience was, it really helps me to serve my clients better. Without a doubt. I, I, I mean, I went through the same thing. I don't think I, don't know if we, I can't remember if we got into it when I was on your podcast, um, but the, I grew up the same, similar. I was always like the, the, the struggling fat kid um, side of stuff. So like, I'm like, all my friends were like, 
really lean and always had abs and like chest striations and looked like bodybuilders without trying. And I'm like the Husky kid. Like my mom literally called me the Husky kid, the, all these things. Um, and I hated it, but then it, uh, it ended up coming to serve me because fast forward to, to now it's like, I can't, there's not a person I can't relate to. You know what I mean? Exactly. It just, I mean, they say you have to walk in those shoes and I, I do see the difference between like struggling with being overweight and then struggling with being underweight. But I think at the core of it, like the issue is the same. Right. And I think that's something we don't often talk about enough, but like most relationships with food stem from something very internal. It doesn't matter if you're carrying excess weight or if you're restricting or you're binging, like it's, it's inside. Without a doubt. Well, so let's, this is the exact reason I don't like notes. I want to stay on that. <laughs> um, so a lot of, a lot of ladies I work with and my team works with, and that I talk to every day, um, come from that place of like where you were, where you were like, I physically can't bring myself to eat more than 900 calories a day. I have to work out every single day, but you, you, but you use the terms like you had to, like, how did you let go? Right. Like, like a lot of people are like, okay, I get what you're saying, Jared. I get what you're saying, Nicole, but I just can't like, how do how did you bridge that gap? This is a really hard question for me to answer because I, I don't know that I'd say I let go so much as I was forced to let go. So I think we talked about this a little bit in our podcast episode, but I am like a high functioning person. So if I'm committed to something, I'm going to do it no matter what it's going to cost me. And a lot of that is my like deep rooted anxiety that I have found other ways to navigate now, but I took it to the, to the end. Like I was going to die on that cross, so to speak, but I broke a hip Mm. that puts things in perspective when you're 20 and you're laying in bed for a month on bed rest because you fractured your hip. So it was really like this come to Jesus moment for me where I was like, okay. And here's the thing in bed on bed rest, not able to work, not do anything. I would slide my lunch to the bed on my crutches. I was still counting almonds and raisins. Wow. That's where I was at. That's where my headspace was at. So four weeks to think about that was really like, Nicole, this is fucked up. Like this is really messed up and you need to do some work on this. And I was kind of forced to, because I couldn't exercise and that was my coping mechanism. And I could count calories, but at the same time, I was seeing all these doctors who were like, your bone density is basically like Swiss cheese. So something's got to give. <laughs> right? Goodness. So that was when I really was forced to let go. And it was like, okay, I don't know what I'm going to do because this is my security blanket. But at the same time, I don't want to live this quality life because I can't do any of those coping mechanisms anyway. So for me, it was really, really hard. And I went through this period of extreme discomfort where I knew I would have to gain weight and I knew I wouldn't have those coping mechanisms. So I had to let go of my fitness pal, went back and cheated and logged to my fitness pal, even when I told my support partners that I wasn't going to, and had to go through that process of like weaning myself off because it was so deeply connected to those sources of control. So I wish I had like a really beautiful, clean answer for those people, but I think it's really like what means more to you, like the way that you're living your life and the potential consequences that can come with that or temporary discomfort of learning new coping mechanisms and doing the internal work to live a much happier, better quality life. Here's the thing. And this is one of the things that I detest about the fitness space is everyone thinks it's, it's all a fluffy answer. Right. And that's one of the things that I love most about you is you're just brutally honest and you're like, okay, I have the answer. 
but you're not going to like it. <laughs> you know what I mean? Where it, so much of this game is nasty, but like the alternative is nasty. Like, like it, it's one of those things that I've never, I've never understood where people are like, well, uh, you doing, you know, changing my life internally, externally is hard, but it's like respect. I get that. But over here is hard too. Like not like being stuck is hard. Like people are like, yeah, Jared, I do this. All this stuff sucks. Like tracking calories, doing meditating, all this, it sucks. And I go, it is but suppressing emotions and eating your face off to hide from, you know, anxiety is not fun either. So it's like, pick one. Like, I think it was, I don't know who originally said the quote first, but I think it the only one that comes to mind is Tony Robbins, but the concept of it's the old saying of when the pain of staying the same becomes greater than the pain of change. That's when we make decisions and make moves. But I, yeah, no, I totally agree with that. I couldn't agree more. I think it's, and here's what comes up for me, like hearing you say that is in the moment, I didn't feel the discomfort of logging. That was pleasure. I didn't feel the discomfort of running five miles a day. That was like stress relief. So I think the biggest, most pivotal part is understanding what your behaviors are a solution for. Like at the time, I had no idea that I felt out of control because of my brother's substance use. And that's why I was doing these things, right? I was just consumed by these things. It's now that I can look back and be like, oh, that's what I was doing because years of therapy and coaching and experience. But I think that's the hardest part is like, why am I doing this thing? There's a reason for this behavior, for this action. And it's clearly not serving me, but what is it helping? And I think that that's pleasure, but in reality, it's causing me so much more pain in the long run. So I think you're right. Then we run further from that pain, but it, that awareness is really hard to gather when you're in the disorder. So how I'm curious. So I, I've, everyone has a little bit different spin on this. How did that awareness come to you? Was it like, like I've seen people like, like, as I agree, where like when you're in the middle of it, it's really hard to see out of the jungle, right? Like when it's almost like when someone's addicted to drugs, it's like, giving into the addiction feels good in the moment, right? That's why people have issues with substances, but then it's like from a broad spectrum, it's like, yeah, I totally have to give up drugs. You know what I mean? It's like when you realize you have a problem, but the addiction's there, how did you realize that? Was it, you were sitting in the hospital bed and you're like, I'm fucking counting raisins. What's wrong with me? Like, or what was the awareness for you? This is going to sound really sad, uh, but it also speaks to like, my identity and how I defined it, but I wanted to help others. I think I mentioned that earlier. Like my upbringing was very much like how people perceive you matters. What you can do for other matters more than anything else. And so for me, my moment of like realizing that was how can I possibly help others if this is what my life looks like right now? Mm. I can't, I can't like whether I was going to be a therapist or I was going to be a nutrition coach or whatever I was going to be if my life is totally fucked up, how can I help anybody else get their life in order? So unfortunately it was like a, I want to help them. So that means I have to help me. And I I came there, right. Eventually I I, came full circle, but it wasn't, I felt like I wasn't worthy enough or valuable enough to make for me. So the awareness came based on what that would mean for the people I could or couldn't help in the future. Right. Well, and I, I think to be honest with you, I think a lot of people that's, that's, is the defining moment, right? Like I guess in an ideal world where like, oh, we should view ourselves high enough or whatever. But I don't think any, when, when people are in their darkness, 
usually yourself is the last thing you, you give a shit about. You know what I mean? Where it's like, even like fast forward to something as crazy as let's say suicide. What's the first thing they teach about when, when someone's in the moment of about to end their life is they're like, what's your family going to think? Do you want to leave your mom? And it's like, it's all about others. I can't remember who, I think it was Ed Milet who was saying like, basically, if you can't do it for yourself, find someone to do it for as far as like, you know, like, let's say when you're in your darkness of whatever you're working on, building your business, um, your own shit, your own addiction, whatever it is, like if, and he literally said, if you can't do it for yourself, do it for your, do it for your family, do it for someone else. Because if that's what it takes, that's what it takes, you know? Totally. It's, I mean, I'd say this, something similar to my clients too. Like even with the nutrition space, you're maybe coming from a dieting history and in your brain, that's the only thing that's going to work. And I know you don't trust that this process is going to work. Let me trust that it's going to work until you start to, right? Let me believe that your body is beautiful and wonderful and amazing until you start to. Same thing. Yeah. makes perfect sense. No, I love it. Now, now let me ask you this. How did you stop Like uh, a question I get a lot is from the obsession side of it. Like, how do you, in your opinion, from like a tactical side, how do you teach to stop? Like, like when you said you used to obsess about literally everything and it was your form of grounding. How do you teach someone who is just completely obsessive to go from obsession and fucking neurotic and crazy to like this beautiful rainbows and sunshine of like not obsessing and it's, it's fine. I think there are two different kinds of people. So again, I'm not going to give you like this beautifully packaged answer. Here we go. <laughs> because for me, I couldn't run anymore. Like broke a hip a couple years later, broke my back because of oh under eating. <laughs> I know, I know. Right. Like I didn't learn my lesson soon enough, I guess. Um, so I couldn't run. Like I still, I'd never run anymore. So for me, it was like cold turkey you can't do that thing anymore. So it kind of shifted my focus to like building strength and um, power lifting a little bit, believe it or not. And with the calorie counting, it was a little different, but for me, there was no moderation. Like it was, you have to let go of this thing mm. because you were abusing it. But I do believe that there are abstainers and moderators because we're not all created the same, right? There are different kinds of people. I'm a, I'm a cold Turkey person. Like I struggle with all or nothing thinking. I know that I call myself a recovering all or nothing thinker. And so for me, it was like, dude, you've got to stop this. This is toxic and like, let go of the obsession. Mm. But I also work with a lot of clients who are coming from a similar place, but for them, moderating is better. So cold Turkey would like throw them into a tailspin Yeah, because maybe they don't have any other tools that they can lean back on, or they don't have support. So instead it's like, Hey, can we log for one day and then try to eat similarly the next day, but don't log. And if you're struggling, shoot me a message or something. And so then you go back to logging the next day. Or if you're overtraining, can we cut back on your mileage versus like taking a week off? Because that feels like, oh my God, right? Mm -hmm. So I think there's different approaches for different people. But at the end of the day, I think it's digging into where's that obsession coming from? Like for me, I needed control and it was giving me a false sense of control. Sure. But how could I find that control elsewhere? Or just realize like life is... a game, right? Like I really don't have control over a lot of these things. I can't control my brother's behavior. I can't control, you know, the weather tomorrow. And I just have to recognize what I can control, focus on that and stop obsessing over the things that I can't, which I know sounds much easier in theory. I I preach that literally like to almost every person I talk to where it's like, to be honest, I feel like 
I could be wrong. Biologically, we're programmed to do the opposite. We're programmed to hyperfixate on what we have no control over, like the weather, politics, what your neighbor thinks, the, you know, whatever, the color of the hair, the person that, you know, you ran into at Walmart and how ugly it is, whatever. Like, and then we have all the things we have in our control that would arguably ground us in cause change. We kind of forget, you know, I, but, but that's like a recipe for chaos and anxiety. It's like, I'm going to obsess over everything I can't control in anything that could ground me. I'm going to like literally throw out the window. You know, yeah. um, so I love that. The other thing that I think what what you what your process that you do, it's very similar to mine with people in that sense, is when they realize nothing bad's gonna happen. Cause at the end of the day, there's a level of letting go that has to happen, right? And that's always hard. You know, like when the brain just all the brain cares about is survival and self-preservation. So to let go is terrifying, which is like, okay, we get that. But then when we, when like, let's say the client realizes nothing bad happens. Like, let's say they, they track Monday through Friday and, or let's say Monday through Sunday, and they're freaked out about not tracking. And you say, don't track Wednesday's breakfast and then whatever. And then they, they went the week by and they made progress. And I, I swear part of the brain goes, oh, nothing bad happened. So that was okay. So instead of like forcing someone to think, hey, you're wrong, your belief is wrong which we naturally have resistance. It's almost like pulling on a dog's leash. It lunges forward, more dog analogies. But when we tell someone, hey, you're wrong, Here, here's why, there's still like that inherent friction of like, they're going to resist against it. But like when you like sneak behind that and go straight to the mind, it's and the brain realizes nothing bad's going to happen. It's like, the, I always compare it to the fear of heights. You can't read a book about getting over the fear of heights if you're scared shitless. doesn't matter. You could be like holding the pamphlet, getting ready to jump out of the plane, and you might be going, fuck, 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 fuck. You jump out, land, and then you go, I would do that again right now. It's because the body taught the mind what to think. That's that's the example I give a lot. And I love that that still happens when you're like, all right, let's let's not track for just tomorrow, but eat the exact same as you did the day prior. You know what I mean? Yes. No, exactly. And I think, so part of my coaching philosophy is I want to help you do what is sustainable. And at the end of the day, I personally don't believe that logging or tracking in an app is sustainable. Like I don't want to be 70 and tracking and I don't want any of my clients to be 70 and tracking. So, so along that same line of thinking, what we'll do is, okay, you're attached to lose it or my fitness pal or whatever app. What if you just took pictures of your food for a day? Like, isn't the function of that exactly the same? Or what if you just wrote it down in a notebook for a day that sent it to me? And again, they're like, oh, wow, it's not the app. Like the app isn't this magical thing that I have given power to. It's just one thing. And now I can do this other. And it's the exact same thing you just described. But we're letting go of what we think is solving our problems and keeping us, you know, making progress. When in reality, we've just attributed so much power to it inside of our heads. And we don't need it. No, absolutely. Because I think a lot of people kind of along that line is they're trapped in either extreme. They're either like, um, no, I won't track and, and monitor anything. I want to intuitively eat or mindfully eat, which I'm a fan of, which is a thing. But most people's intuition around food is fucked, right? It's like most people's intuition around food says binge because you're anxious, right? Like, so like we got to be able to rein that back in. But then people are in the camp of, well, I can't track my calories and log forever. And I'm like, I totally get that. But it's almost like we graduate, right? It's like, okay, maybe if you have some fucked up shit around food while we're doing inner work, let's learn about portions and retrain the brain on like your hunger signals and what, you know, this much of food equates to. And then like, cause this is what I do with my, my clients. A lot of times, most people that come up to us, they're 
shit is all over the place with their relationship with food and binge eating, emotional, guilt-ridden, this a lot of go- stuff going on. So while drawing in inner work, we also draw in some habits around food. So like that, figuring out like the role of calories and protein and understanding that, like basically even playing field, like with food relationships. That was the other thing. I have people who who message me and say, well, tracking calories killed my relationship with food. And I'm like, I use it to fix people's relationship with food because it neutralizes everything. And then let's say they track calories for, and they're really good at, they're really consistent. It's like, okay, you went from first grade to fifth grade just now. Now let's go to fifth grade to high school. Now I want you to not track these two days of the week. And then we're going to go to the, like, I have one of my girls right now, she's thriving. She went from, uh, from that kind of place. But now she, her, she's so regimented during the week. She only tracks on the weekends. Cause that's when they go do shit, you know? So she's like, I literally eat the same stuff Monday through Friday, like because of work and schedules. And then the weekends she's like, we go do stuff and I just need a little bit more control. So she tracks her calories two out of the seven days, but she was a person that like used to hyper fixate on a meal plan. So like that would change someone's life in just the structure. So I love that, that, that sequence. Would you, would you say your system is similar from like, you almost graduate, if that makes sense? It's very, very similar, almost the exact same thing. So when I have people who message me and they're like, Hey, are you an intuitive eating coach? Are you a macro coach? Are you a cat? I'm like D none of the above. Like it's not <laughs> convolution of all of the things, because I really don't think that either end of the spectrum teaches us what we need to know to a reach our goals, B address mindset, which is really a black hole in the nutrition and fitness space and C make sure that we're getting sustainable results. So we do the exact same thing where if someone has no idea what they're doing, tracking can be a great form of action and awareness and accountability. But if you're on the other end of that and you're using it obsessively, just like anything like exercise is wonderful, but you can have too much of a good thing, right? Or your attitude going into it, it can be really damaging. So it's not so much the thing, it's the motivation behind the thing. Like, why are you doing it? Is it helpful accountability? Or is it so that you can punish yourself when you don't hit the exact number that my fitness pal spits out at you? It, I, I love that answer because it's all contextual. Like one of it, this, there's a insult I, I get, but I take it as a positive thing when I, I get asked questions. Um, people go, you sound like a politician because I'm like, well, it depends on the context or well, contextually it depends based on these, like whatever versus like, do you like this? And they want a yes or no answer. But like, I love that because I get the same thing. People go, are you a, ma- a macros coach? Are you a whatever? And it's like, I'm, I'm not going to make all my clients do the same shit, right? I have some people who are like your type A personality who the more numbers I can give them, the better. It's like they're accountant and they want to lose weight. So it likes they the more numbers, the happier they become. But then I have some people that we coach that you use the term calories and a panic attack sets in where it's like, you can't handle both those the same way. I have some people who start with us with like a shredded six pack and they want to get leaner without killing themselves. But then we have some people that start with us at 400 pounds and they haven't even ever looked at a treadmill. And it's like, we, you're telling me you're going to handle all that the same way. Cause I've never understood. Like you'll see coaches in their Instagram bios. They're like the keto coach, the macro coach. And it's like, So you're saying you're the shitty coach who treats everyone the exact same, you know? People are weirded out by that, Jared, or at least I find like on discovery calls with potential clients, I almost always say, I just want to let you know, I'm a nutrition agnostic. So I will not be prescribing like any specific diet tool at you. And they're like, but wait, like what 12 steps will you give me? And I'm like, well, that it's not one size fits all, right? Like this isn't a cookie cutter program. So it depends. I can tell you that I have clients who eat this way and clients who eat that way and clients who eat seven times a day and clients who eat three times. Like it, 
it's all about you. And I find that, well, especially coming from diet history, they're like, I don't get it, but it sounds like nothing I've ever tried before. And none of that other stuff has worked. So let's go. Like, do you find people are just as confused? Well, like I'll get people that like, like my, what I'll call like, like, like my sounds bad, like my really good clients that like really trust the process. They stick around for more than like two days and enough to see some really big, like, you know, they're, they've been in this thing for like four or five months and they're like, they've got a lot of momentum. They finally get the hang of things and they're fucking crushing. And they go, I feel like this should be more complicated because or they're like, I feel they literally say, and I'm not like trying to hype up my own stuff. Cause I've guaranteed the same thing with you is they go, I feel like this should be harder because the people who say that come from diet culture who like trying to eat perfect is like a, you know, a, a, a college grade trigonometry class or physics class where they're like mixing and doing crazy chemistry and stuff. And it's like, no, this it's one of the things I usually tell with most people from the get go is this should be the vibe of brushing your teeth. If we think about it, like we literally brush our teeth obsessively. We brush them when they're clean. I would argue like last night I went to bed. I brushed them. I laid in bed all night because I slept, let's say six, seven, eight hours. I didn't eat anything. I got up and brushed my teeth this morning. Like my teeth weren't dirty, but like we brush our teeth when they're clean because we know two minutes in the morning, two minutes at night keeps every problem at bay and we don't think about it. But like when I tell people that should be the whole energy of this fitness and fat loss and transformation game, it's, and people go, I, I never thought of it that way. But like, because my opinion is if it's anything but that, if it's anything but totally doable, because we all know we're going to brush our teeth till we die. If it's anything but that vibe and that whole energy of brushing your teeth, it's not sustainable and you're going to quit. Totally. It's it's like um, Leo Babuta's book, The Plus. Have you read that? Mm-mm. Read it. It's a good one. Uh, but he talks about, and I did my dietetic internship with Precision Nutrition, and they are big believers on like habit stacking. So I use a lot of that in my practice as well. But James Clear talks about that a lot in his uh, book, Atomic Habits, like where you stack it between like, let's say, let's say every night you brush your teeth and go to bed, and then you put the habit you're working on, like journaling right between those and stuff like that. Exactly. Because it's more likely to happen. But they also talk about the power of less meaning when you try to do two, three, four, five things at a time, your chance of success is like something disgusting, like 35%. Mm -hmm. The second you focus on one thing at a time, and he has a few other stipulations in there, like make sure you have someone who's checking in on you, make sure it's measurable. But when you have one habit, then your chance of success goes to like 85, 90%. So it's, I always tell my clients, if you're not 90% confident that you can do this thing, we need to make it easier. We need to break it down. And the same thing happens. They're like, but the, wh- where's the rest? Like, what else should I be doing? And I'm like, no, no, just work on this. And when you <laughs> crush it, your compliance is, you know, 80 plus percent, then we'll add. But for now, just go brush your teeth, essentially. Well, I I, I think the reason people are so against that, why, like, like I tell someone, hey, here are your two habits. And they're like, I have to have more. But it's because excuse me, that's what they've always done. That's diet culture for you is like, Hey, let's, let's put, you know, let's track calories. Let's track macros. Let's, uh, have special meal timing, take 16 different supplements, fasted cardio in the morning, late afternoon, strength training, walk at night, um, casein protein before bed. And it's like, it's like 18 habits. And then people wonder why they're not successful. But I, I personally feel I could be, I could be totally off that the reason people are so against minimalism around habits is because it's all deep rooted in desperation and impatience where they're like, wait, if I do two things, if I do 20, I will get results faster. So I'm curious your thoughts on that. 
Yeah, I I do agree with that. I think sometimes there's predictability in the overwhelm of, of putting too much on your plate. So it almost feels safe, right? And I also think there's a little bit like this is like psychology at its finest, but if I only have one or two things to do, I have to be successful. And if I don't really believe in my ability to be successful, like if there's something holding me back and I don't believe I'm worth the results I'm trying to achieve, like that freaks me the fuck out, right? Like, I don't think I want to do that. Instead, I'm going to keep procrastinating and distracting myself with 17 things because I know the outcome of that. So I think that for sure is happening. But then there's also, I work with a lot of overworked, busy mom, women, you know, working women who have so many things going on, so many like hats that they're wearing that their priorities are like scraping the bottom of the barrel. Sure. And that's a perfect example of, I'm like, how is this multitasking working for you? Because there's this societal expectation that like, as a woman, especially, and I'm sure it, it targets males too, but like, you need to be doing all the things. Like you need to be the homemaker and you also need to be the person who makes all these meals and you need to be the person who is volunteering and on your kids, PTA, whatever, like all the things. So I sort of think there's the hustle culture yeah. playing a role too. And it's a great analogy because we can say, Hey, how's that working for you? Yeah. It's not. So it's not going to work with your nutrition either. But for sure, I couldn't agree more. I, I always I always thought hustle culture and diet culture are just different flavors of the same thing. You know, um, I think a lot of it also has to do with, I think people as societally as well are just addicted to chaos, right? Like when like going back to like multitasking and doing a million things, it's like, I should do this with my diet. But like psychology teaches us that the mind craves what's familiar. So if all you know is a million things in chaos, because that's what super moms do, it's like, that's kind of natural. Like why someone would do that with fat loss. I have a belief that I think it goes even deeper in some cases where I think it's a level of mitigation of ownership because like, like you said, where, where it's like, Oh, if I only have one, these track my calories and that's the only thing, or these one or two things on my list, it's like, fuck, I can't not do that. Like now it's like, I have no choice, but if I have 17, I can totally make like almost from an excuse side where it's like, Oh, I'm busy. Oh, I didn't get to all of it. I have so many things on my plate. It's a, or it's almost like a, when like a cop pulls you over and you go, "Oh, officer, I had no idea I was speeding." It's because we hope he will look at that and be like, "Ah, mitigation of ownership. Like they don't he, he didn't know better. He couldn't do better. So, hey, I was in a hurry to go to the hospital. My family broke their leg in hope that the police officer will go, "Oh, he had a really good reason, so he's not responsible for his actions." I feel like there's a part of it in weight loss when people stack so many things on their plate, they're so busy. They have so many things. I almost wonder if there's a little bit of mitigation of ownership really deep unconsciously. That's just my own hypothesis, but no, I can see that. And my brain immediately wants to peel back another layer of the onion and say, is it because the mitigation of ownership, we don't know who we are, or we're not content with sitting who we are sitting with who we are like in our identity. So my husband would be like appalled if he knew I was sharing this story, but for him, um, work was like his identity that was impressed upon him very much growing up. Like you are a male, you're supposed to provide for your family. You're supposed to be working and COVID hit last year. He works at a gym, he's a personal trainer. And so he couldn't do what he typically does. And I saw this man like crumble before me because he didn't no, like where is his identity if he can't be working? I totally resonate with that. And I think there's a lot of that with, with people who struggle with weight, whether like you said, like, oh, I'm, I've always been the husky kid, or I've always been like this person because it was a story that was impressed upon you growing up. Like 
so many adults, like grown ass people don't know who they are now Mm -hmm. and they don't know how to sit with themselves and just be still and not be distracted and constantly have 17 things on their to-do list because like, God forbid you realize you're somebody different than you thought you were, or you're somebody told you you should be. Mm -hmm. I I don't know if we're getting like too deep and like, no, no, no. I was actually going to take it there. (laughs) (laughs) I was actually going to bring that up. Um, Cause like, I see this all the time from like a, from like a predicting sabotage to happen um, or like watching it happen. Um, like if someone's identity is struggle and then they don't struggle anymore, that's death to that old story. So then they have find a reason to struggle again. Or if like their identity is, Hey, I've, I've always been fat or weight loss has always been hard, but let's say you lose weight easily. Like, let's say you like do something and it happens easily. And that goes completely against your old identity and the brain won't let that happen. The brain doesn't care if we're happy. The brain cares about self-preservation. So all it knows is, ah, everything I know about my life is gone. This is my personal belief why so many marital problems happen when the kid leaves the house. Their identity is mom, kid leaves. And then all of a sudden divorce happens shortly after. Like statistically, one of the most prominent times divorce happens is as soon as the kid leaves. So which is why like, but that's that's a whole nother, whole nother can of worms. But But it all goes back to the identity, but most people, I, I agree a thousand percent can't sit with themselves. There's, there's something that I've always, I've been saying a lot lately because this whole conversation is what I love about it is we haven't really talked about calories or strength training. Like we haven't talked about calorie, calorie deficit or periodization or whatever. It's because none of it has to, this, the issues aren't, aren't in that, you know? Um, so the issues are oneself, right? The person, but I've always said this, you cannot conquer yourself if you will not sit with yourself in most people's everything is doing everything fucking possible not to sit with themselves. And then the one time people do sit with themselves when they lay down to go to bed, then they complain, my brain won't shut the fuck up. So I have trouble sleeping. Then they take a bunch of sleeping pills or they drink or whatever they do. And then they finally get to sleep. And it's like the one time your brain could talk to you, you don't listen. Or like, I always can, I I compare every, I get really deep with this. I compare everything to your inner child. And so I'm like, imagine if that was a, a little kid, you would never tell your, your seven-year-old child, hey, I don't want to watch you. I don't want to listen to you. I don't want to see you. And then the one time they sit down with you, you fall asleep. It's like, and well, then no wonder the kid acts out. You know what I mean? I know exactly what you mean. I, this is like taking me back to a therapy session I had a while ago, but I remember I was explaining to my therapist the first time I felt anxiety. That's what she was asking me. And I said, I remember being on my parents' closet floor and I was just laying there like young, I don't know how old, 10 maybe. And I was like, I have this weird pain in my chest. And my parents are just very much like loving parents. They're the best ever. But at the time it was like, what 10 year old has anxiety, right? They didn't know to look for that. So it was like, Hey, like you should just go do this. You should distract yourself by getting this done. Or did you talk to that person? Or it's very like task oriented. Mm. So even now when I'm feeling anxious, my immediate default is go do perform, achieve, like serve somebody. And I avoid sitting with myself. Yep. And what my therapist said, like almost had me in tears because she was like, Nicole, I wish I could go back and just sit on the floor with you in that closet and just hug that version of you. Mm-hmm. That's it. And I, I don't think so many of us know how to hold that space for ourselves. One, because maybe we've never had it. Like we've never been shown how to do that, but you're right. We just kind of distract and run from it. It's, it's scary for most people. Cause one of the, my biggest things I've been, I've been really like with clients and like in my, my, my group program and things like that is, um, is really hitting home the, 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 in what I would classify as the inner child and in weight loss. Cause most people's issues around food is 
caught up in their childhood stuff. Um, and, but most people won't sit with their inner child around food or they won't like basically kind of redo their childhood. Like a lot, like Tony Robbins said it best when he said, it's never too late to have an amazing childhood. So one of the things like, for example, I'll have clients do is um, when it comes to these old food issues, like for example, a really common thing with amongst, amongst the clients that I serve are um, a big reason they binge eat is because they weren't fed enough as a child. Like when I was talking with one of my girls the other day who happens to be a therapist. Um, and I work with a lot of therapists, ironically, around the same stuff too. So, uh, and she said, no, the reason, as I, I asked her, I said, if you don't mind getting really personal, did you struggle with binge eating when you were little? And she goes, that's where it started. She said, um, my family loved the pieces, but they didn't take care of us or, or provide as much as they should. So when I would go across the street to play with my friend as a, as a little girl, they kind of knew my home life. So they're just like, Hey, so-and-so whatever you want to eat. So I binge ate every other day at my friend's house because I couldn't eat that at home because we didn't have enough food and, or whatever the issue was, or mom said, you know, sugar's bad, or mom made me count my M&Ms or whatever it was. And I basically, whatever the trauma was, and I'm, and I would have the client, I go, I want you to write a letter. No one sees to that version of you thanking them for keeping you alive. Cause there was a serve. It was, it served you some twisted way in there, but then also just let them know that we don't have to do that anymore. And then like out of nowhere, then they don't struggle with that anymore. It's to go back and almost like love on that inner child. And uh, I think a lot of people are scared to go to this spot. Right. You know what I mean? Well, I mean, it's scary because nobody, nobody digs that far back. So a lot of the women that I work with very similar experience, their first dieting experience was like age 12, Mm. age 13. Like you should be kicking a ball in your backyard when you're 12 or 13, right? Like not going to get, not get fat. Yeah. 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 That's ridiculous. But we don't often like make that connection. And so it feels a little like Freudian when you're the coach and you're like, Hey, tell me about like when you were a kid, like what happened then? And I think we're, we're kind of, I don't know if you've ever heard this, but I have some clients who are like, I'm just not into that mindset stuff. Like I just, I'm not a deep person. Yeah. And I'm like, like, hold up. That's not going to work. Yes, you are. Right. <laughs> we're spirit. We're what I don't care what someone believes. We are spiritual beings living in physical bodies and we are not the same as our dog. Yes. You're a deep person. <laughs> like, yeah. Yeah, agreed. We just need to maybe ask different questions. But I think that's the scary thing is like, oh my God, like I don't want to take this childhood trauma and like bring it back up, but it's coming back up anyway in your daily behaviors. So why not address it? Like why not put it on the table and he- help that inner child to heal? It's completely, it's, it's denied. I mean, it's, I mean, we, none of us would ever, if for people that are listening to have kids or that aunt and uncles or whatever, we would not deny our own children. If you had, this is the one, like I'll have clients that, that are really resistant. Then this one example usually will kill it right. Or an algae kills it or makes them cry or both. Um, they go, Oh, I just, you know, they, they're just so resistant to holding space for their own emotions or allowing themselves to feel or this stuff. And I'm like, you realize you're denying this stuff. You're literally denying your inner child. You're denying these things. And they're like, I just, you know, want to wait till I lose weight before I get into this. I go, what would you do if your seven-year-old, your chunky little seven-year-old ran up to you and said, mommy, will you hold me? And you go, not until you lose weight. Mm. And they go, holy fucking shit. That's what I've been doing. And I go, that's what you've been doing. Right. And people are like, well, how do I, what do you do when you like meditate or journal or sit with yourself? I go, what do you do when you need to go take a shit? You go to the bathroom, sit there, what's in comes out, you flush it down the toilet, 
and you carry on. Well, should I like save my, my journals? Should I like go back and I'm like, do you sift through your shit to see what you ate yesterday? Well, no. Okay. It's like, quit judging it. Hold space. Stuff will come out. Old identities will be gone from you. Old stories will ironically leave when you quit running from them. I always compare it to like a dog. When you keep running, it just chases you. And then when you quit running, it probably will jump on you, but then you're now boring and it goes to find something else to play with. Right. And I always say holding space for your emotions is the same way. Don't make this complicated. Sit with yourself in silence. The one thing you've been avoiding doing. Well, my brain won't shut up. Of course it won't shut up. You've been running from it for 30 years. What's a child do when it just wants to talk? You sit there. And it goes, blah, 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 blah. and you just go, uh-huh, uh-huh, uh-huh. Then it goes away. It's the same fucking thing. I think about the kid at the pool. It's like, mom, 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 are you looking? Mom, watch me, mom. <laughs> and I say that as a non-parent, but yeah, it's the same thing. Like until you bring awareness to it. And I think something you said earlier is really important too, Jared, but no judgment, no criticism. And just acknowledging that whatever you did then was a protective mechanism to keep you safe. And it was, it is like, just let it go. Like mm-hmm. You need, did what you needed to do. Yeah, no, I, I totally agree. Like it, anytime I, I love, that's why I love comparing it to people who have kids. I go, when your little seven-year-old came and got stung by the world's biggest bee, you don't judge them. You go, you, I always say you accept first fix later. You don't, a kid comes to you with like, little Billy stole his stick or they got stung by a bee or someone said they're stupid and the little, the child's upset, whatever the, the issue was, you don't say, get your shit under control. Then I'll hold you. You go um, like a, a mom. I always moms are the great example of this is mom is a safe space where every emotion's okay. Like I could literally, like even my mom, like I could literally go to my mom and be like, mom, I've been doing heroin for the past 10 years. I need help. My mom wouldn't go figure it out on your own and come back. She would, in that moment, she would obviously be very upset and disappointed, but she would accept first. Then we would go get help. I don't do heroin, but like it's parents are always the space for accept first, figure it out later. But then when it comes for that same parent that's just trying to lose weight, they won't accept the, the overweight version of them with the binge eating, the emotional, the sadness. They're like, no, no, I have to fix. It's like, no, no, no. You need to love and accept right now first. We can fix later, but most people in trying to fix deny. I feel like that's just a great analogy of creating body composition change of any kind in general, right? Like the same principle applies. You have to accept your body as it is. And I think people just get totally weirded out by that because they're like, but I don't want to accept this body, right? Like I want to change it. Jared, it's not okay until I'm down 50 pounds. So like, I don't, I don't know how to honor this body until it looks the way that I want to. And like, that doesn't work, right? Because take anybody who's like, oh, remember that picture when I thought I was heavy for the first time. And now I only wish I looked like yeah, that. I wish I was the, my fat version of high school. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Yeah. And it, my story too, right? Like looking back, even at something that was so unhealthy, I didn't see it then. So it's it's all this internal process of learning how to accept and honor and dare I say love. And what I mean by that is not like loving every single thing about how your body looks, but loving your body itself, even if you want to change it. Like, I think that's the rub for a lot of people is they're like, oh no, those two things can't coexist. But just like you said, you can accept to your child and then help them to fix the problem in the same space. Like that can, that can coexist. I think people forget how amazing they are, even their bodies. I think the reason people go think they're, they can't, they, they won't exist together is because they think they're only body fat and muscles. 
right? Of course, if you're 100% body fat, like, like not like body fat percentage, I should, let me reword that. If your person is, forget your intention, your lovingness, your, your character, your, all this stuff about you, your other physical attributes, if you're only body fat and muscles and then you like want to lose your belly fat, like, okay, self-deprecation happens. But no one exists like that, right? We are not just body fat and muscles. I compare it like this. I say, imagine, because I got a question the other day in a group, my group program, and they were at they were asking, like, how do you love yourself if you hate everything about yourself? And I go, I don't care if a therapist told you your body dysmorphic, you don't hate everything about yourself. And I said, here's why. Do you have basically two symmetrical eyes? Well, yeah. Do you have like a nose that's right in the middle of your face and not an inch too high that would make you look really weird? Well, yeah. Like in all, like people forget all these things about physically, but let alone like, do you have organs that work? Does your heart beat when you don't tell it to? Are you upset about all those things? Well, of course not. Okay. So these are things that you love about yourself or you appreciate about yourself. But the analogy I really like is I go, imagine if you have a $30 million mansion. Okay. You own literally the best mansion in the land. It's a $30 million mansion. It is a work of art. It is amazing. But in the basement of said mansion has a half bath. Inside the half bath, inside the half bath is a hot pink sink. You have this beautiful $30, $30 million mansion, but you have a $30 sink in the basement in the half bath that you really don't care for. Would you say the entire mansion is worthless because you would like the sink to be a different color? Absolutely not. $30 million mansion, $30 sink. You would just replace the $30 sink, but you can still love your mansion. You still like find massive value in the mansion. You wouldn't go $30 sink, burn the motherfucker to the ground because there's no value. Go, you're the mansion, your belly fats the sink. It's okay to want to get rid of the sink and change it, just like you want to cut your hair, but it's not okay to say the entire mansion's worthless. Yeah, it's like reducing the person to their aesthetics, right? The thing yeah. that they dislike the most. And I think some of that's culturally perpetuated, right? For because sure. people get validated by their external appearance more than anything else. But I think you and I would both agree. External appearance is awesome, but it's the least cool thing about right? anyone. But then people, but then even with that, like I'll even like, let's play devil's advocate. I'm a big fan of the the, the physical parent appearance, but body fat's only part of that. Again, if you've ever watched like an episode of like, I don't know, Dr. Pimple Popper, some people have like potato-sized growths coming out of their forehead. And are is this person not thankful you don't have a potato-sized growth coming out your forehead? Like even a step, like I was speaking with someone applying for coaching the other, the other day and she's asked the same question. She's like, how do you do this? If you hate everything about your, your physical appearance. And I started asking her, I go, well, what about you other than your, your belly? Do you like, and she goes, I'm not going to lie. I've got amazing tits and a really cute face. And I go, you know how many women I know would do anything to have beautiful, <laughs> beautiful tits and a cute face. But you just said three minutes ago, you hate everything about your appearance, but now you're singing a different tune. It's because we have have a tendency to like shun all these things that would go against that core belief of self-deprecation, you know, so. Right. And it's only saying like, it's like someone saying, Hey, I want to buy this car because it's beautiful without even acknowledging like whether or not it runs, right? Yeah. Like forget that the body like birthed multiple children or carried, you know, a human life, or it got you through like cancer or a divorce or menopause or like the body is so amazing based on what it can do, not even just yeah. what it appears. So we're reducing ourselves just to like the shell when we say yeah. those things. No, without a doubt. Awesome. Well, let's, let's tie up with this. Let's, let's put a little bow on it. I like to ask the, what I call the Starbucks question. Um, so hypothetically you are inside Starbucks and you ordered your, whatever your normal Starbucks drink is. So you've got like a minute before it's done and you're on your way. 
but someone catches you at Starbucks and they're like, Hey, Nicole, I love you and what you have to say. What advice would you give me to like, not be so stuck in such a shit, shitty place, but you only have like this, like you're getting ready to leave Starbucks. Like you're literally watch them making your mocha fropa bullshit. So like what departing advice in like that context from a tactical standpoint, would you give someone? Um, so to bring out my inner politician, I would probably say, Hey, let's talk about this more. So shoot me a DM because there's no <laughs> way I can answer your question in right. one minute, but I know what you're getting at. So I think my, um, elevator speech would be something like, tell me why you feel like your life is shit because we have to start at the beginning, yeah. right? Like we have to figure out like, what is the problem that you're experiencing? And maybe it's, it's not weight. Maybe it's, you're going through something else in your life. That's causing you to feel like shit because you're questioning your self-worth. And then because we're people and we like to pain shop, you're making it all about the weight. Mm, that's really powerful. People like to pain shop. I'm going to have yes. to use that. That's powerful. We just came off a holiday weekend. Do you know how many clients I was like, mentally slapping a little bit because they weighed in the day afterwards. And I was like, this is pain shopping. Like you knew what was going to happen here because of all the extra carbs and alcohol and salt yesterday. Like you're just asking for it. But yeah, that would be, I think my little spiel is just figure out what the root of the issue is. I'm a weird plant person. Um, it's one of my hobbies. Actually, my therapist told me I needed a hobby. So I turned plants into that hobby a couple of years ago. And, um, that's, it's a great analogy for me. It's like, we all want to see the bloom on the outside. And we look at that and we're like, Oh, I, I don't have like beautiful green leaves, like everybody else. I don't look like everybody else, but we forget that before any of that happens, you have to spend time watering the plant and put it in the right lighting and the roots are growing underneath. So we have to start with the roots and figure out like, why do you hate yourself? And why are you behaving in this way? If it's not serving you, And it's not the sexy part. It's really not the sexy part, but it is the most powerful Mm. part that we all have to do if we want sustainable change. I I actually give that example. That's, I love that analogy. I I give it a lot where it's like, if you start to see a plant wilting, you don't take your bottle of water and spray the leaves. You do, to be honest, the work that looks wasted, that's covered in dirt. You pour the water into the dirt around the roots. So, but that's like, it's not sexy. It's not exciting. You don't see the progress, even though it's happening. It's like, it's biological. It's happening. You water plant, it drinks, right? And over time of doing the dirty work, because roots are ugly, they're not pretty petals. They're surrounded by, they're, they're literally dirty, but that's what causes the flower to bloom where you want to see it but most people won't. That's actually why when I got my sleeve done, why I have the roots on this tree showing is because actually the, the t- I have the roots showing, but as well as I have an egg corn in it, because we have to, to handle things where they stem from. That's why like half the reason of this tattoo it's so I love, I think it's a beautiful way to cap that. Um, so Nicole, where can people find you if they're like, wow, this was dope as shit. And I'd like to get to know her more. So where can people find you? I hang out on Instagram all the time. So come hang out with me there at nutrition with Nicole and pretty much like anything that's happening, whether it's like a free Facebook community challenge or a cool podcast episode, um, actually our podcast episode just released today. Oh, which is- there we go. Go check that out too. <laughs> yeah. What a coincidence. Um, but I, I announce it all there. So yeah, that's the place where you can come find me, hang out in the DMs and we can chat more about what's going on. Cool. Um, and I will make sure to have all this stuff in the description. That way people don't have to try to spell because guys like me can't spell. So anyway, I love it. Cool. Well, thank you so much, Nicole. I really, really appreciate it. And I'll talk to you soon. Awesome. Thank you so much for having me, Jared. 
All right, guys, thank you so much for tuning in to today's episode of the Hamilton Trained Podcast. It means a ton to me. I know this is a little bit longer of an episode, but I know you got lots of value out of it if you stuck around. Be sure to connect with Nicole on her socials. I'll leave... Um, uh, I'll leave all that in the podcast notes below. Um, and if you haven't already yet, be sure and check out literally all the, all the links below. If you haven't grabbed my free course, it's down there. If, uh, if you haven't started following me on YouTube, I'm putting out new, uh, I just started putting out new videos every week um, and really getting back on track with um, writing to my email list. So all that stuff is below. If if you like this, this kind of content, you will love the content over there. Um, but yeah, otherwise I appreciate you. And if you haven't already, be sure and subscribe to the podcast. If you haven't already, be sure and leave a review. That's how we get the podcast to more ears. And um, that's the one thing I ask of you is if you if you really resonate with the podcast, be sure and re- leave a review and share it with a friend. Um, but otherwise, I'll talk to you next time. <laughs>